0: Yeah, Paul says in Ephesians that we are not meant to be like infants, tossed back and forth by blowing here by every bad microphone. Let's try this out. We'll give it one more try. So this goes in here. Anthony? Can you help me out here? Oh, I think I got it. Not blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. This is Ephesians 4. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Everybody say truth and love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the, of him who is the head that is Christ. We are called to put off our childish ways, as Larry talked about, while at the same time owning our childlike ways, as it says in the beginning of Ephesians, as he speaks to our identity, he being the apostle Paul, but really the Holy Spirit. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. This means to be innocent. In God's sight and in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And... I want to give that bookmark just because we are rooted in the book of Ephesians. It kind of helps us understand how it's laid out, its structure. If you look at the Bible project video, which I sent in our email, if you don't get our weekly emails, I'd love to get a connection card from you. But Ephesians is split into two major parts, specifically our identity in Christ and then our responsibility with Christ. It's our collective identity as, as God's people rooted in the original gospel story. It's the The unity that we share coupled with uh, the diversity among us that we celebrate. That's all this first three chapters which we're located in. And then the second portion, chapters four through six, is about our coupled, or our continued story rather, and the collective responsibility we have as as a new humanity. And before I I jump into our passage today, uh, you guys know I went to Israel I want to take you on a little tour in one place. But even before I do a tour, I wanted to show a painting. It's a pretty uh, infamous painting in Western art. Pretty famous. Pretty well-known. Yeah, yeah, pretty well-known. Thanks. Rick's my, um, he, uh, that's Rick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whenever anything goes wrong, he'll just feel free to tell me. Um, yeah. Does anybody know what painting this is? Madonna hey, and the Child. And the Child uh, made by... I don't know his last name well, but Duccio uh, de, I'm gonna, I, uh, I got to get this right, especially considering the conversation today, The Bueninsegna. Duccio de Bueninsegna. Okay, what do you notice about this painting? There should be something that stands out to you, culturally. Looks like a Child looks like an adult. Yeah, there's a lot of things. This is one of the things that we don't recognize a lot in Western art. The child is white. Yep, there you go, Chris. The child is white. They are uh, European. And um, Jesus was, does everybody know what his ethnicity was? Semitic, Jewish, brown. Yeah, he's brown. But uh, this is very common in the West, um, that Christian art, when you look at the life of Jesus, the apostles, the holy family, uh, it's, it's... Depicted in a European sense. Now, if you go to the Church of Annunciation, which is located in Nazareth, who knows where Nazareth is? What's important about Nazareth? Yeah, it's his hometown. It's his home, that's where he spent his hidden years of his life, ages two to thirty. Uh, that's where both Joseph and Mary are from. They lived close together in the time there was only like 400, 500 people there. Now it's a city that has quite a few couple hundred thousand. Well, there's a church there that celebrates Mary's home. It's called the Church of the Annunciation. uh, That celebrates where the Gabriel came and visited Mary and told her about her being uh, pregnant with Jesus. And this church is really an historical, archaeological just mainstay. It has this old first century home where there was house worship and it's this cave. That most people believe is Mary's home, and then it's then there was a pre-Constantinian church built around that home, and then there was a Byzantine or a time of the emperor church built around the church. But then, after the Crusades and some of the destruction that came, they built a, a post-Crusades church, and then finally, there's a Catholic church around that. I'm geeking out right now, but what that does is it, it highlights the significant archaeological layer cake that is necessary to be like, yeah, this is probably where Mary grew up, given all the evidence, if you know archaeology. And uh, what is beautiful is not only the inside of this church, but also the outside of this church. And in the 1960s, this church commissioned, uh, really invited all nations and countries to give their own depiction of the Madonna and child through their own cultural lens, and so what you have is like all these different cultures in countries. That's Czechoslovakia. There's the Philippines depicting a version of the Madonna and Child. There's China to the right. Ireland to the left. That's hometown for me. Uh, we keep going. This is Cameron. Uh, that's Africa. This is Thailand over here. And it's just like these amazing portraits of the Madonna and Child. You have the hometown of this Jewish savior... And at the same time, you stand in his hometown, you're in awe because this is the king of all nations. And rather than judge history, it's kind of compelling to realize that we can't help but see Jesus through our own cultural lens. I think that's like the wonderful reframe. We think of Jesus, Jesus is so compelling, the gospel is so near and dear to all of our hearts that we can't help but see him through our own lens. Similarly, if you go to the Mount of Olives, there's a church of Pater. Uh, Nostra which is Latin for our father there they have uh, our father written in s- like dozens and dozens of languages it's just incredible and when you're there you, fo- you feel kind of like in either of those spaces you feel big and at the same time small you're big because you're standing there and you're like in the midst of all these cultures you're like I'm standing here next to this, the, our father written in Vietnamese, or looking at a Korean version of the Madonna and child, that's in Nazareth, this is Jerusalem, you're just like, whoa, and at the same time you realize just how small you are, when you realize like, oh, this is God working in all cultures, in all nations, in all history, at all time, I mean, Christianity obviously is not just a Western religion. It's this multi-ethnic, multicultural covenant family in Christ that transcends the nations, while at the same time is in the midst of it, transcends time all throughout time. It's amazing. And that, that's where the main idea today is. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religious movement in the history of the human race. It just is. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religious movement in the history of the human race. And our part in it, and in this time, is just a sliver of it. That's humbling. We're just in a small sliver of of this movement. But it's also beautiful that God sees us completely and loves us and is with us as we are. And if you want scriptures, it's almost endless in terms of God being the God of all nations and wanting to reach all nations and how he incarnates himself in our space, but also other spaces throughout time and throughout the world, obviously. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religious movement in the history of the human race. And yet, there are forces at work that will try to convince you and me that from a church standpoint or from a religious orthopraxis standpoint, the way we do church, that we're the ones who kinda got it right. Yeah, that we, we you know, we know Jesus is the way and the truth in life, but the way we do church, it's our way or the highway, you know? And yet, at the same time, there's a curiosity within all of us just to be like, I wonder what it's like right now to be part of the church in Chile or the church in Russia or Ukraine. What's it like? Right now, we know the Janes are, they're in Uganda, right? Uganda. It's like, what, what, are the, what is Oakley experiencing right now as she experienced the church? How amazing is that? What's it like to pray with refugees who are coming across our line just 50 minutes south of the border right now? See, therein lies within us this kingdom curiosity of what God's doing elsewhere and how God is, is working elsewhere. And at the same time, there's these external forces that draw us to our own cultural pride. You know how we do it. Two songs, announcements, we call it the welcome. One song, message, hopefully it's okay. Another song, and then we hang out and chat. That's the way to do it. Drinking Ironsmith coffee, which is God's coffee. That's what we do. We had this idea that like this, it's, this is our way. When we, when we realize, I mean, God, is, God wants to show us so much more through so many people. That he's working in. And so in Ephesians, we have to recognize that there are two major themes, and you'll see this in that bookmark. You gave that out, right, Coco? I'm having a moment, okay? The two major themes are power and love, like Huey Lewis. That's the power of love. I always, when I read that, I think of that. But power Is a huge theme within Ephesians, specifically powers, these spiritual forces. You see it in Ephesians 1 when Paul's praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority power and dominion, these powers, and every name that is evoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And we talked about, I'm not going to get into this, but there's a, there's a bookend to this passage statement in Ephesians 6, 2, that Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against uh, Russia or Ukraine or the Democrats, Republicans, right, left, privileged immigrants, LGBTQIA2+, the neo-Nazis, Muslims, Hindus, atheists. It's not against the chapel self-realization. It's not against the chapel awareness. It's not against other churches. It's against these powers and authorities, the rulers, against all the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we see this idea of power arise in our passage today, in Ephesians 3.8, and we've kind of got a chunk of passage today, but that's okay, it's going to be fun. And Paul says in there as a, as a preview, his intent, God's intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There's those powers again. Again, when you hear heavenly rulers, it's, it's talking about non-material forces. It's not like people in heaven. It's the, non, it's the spiritual forces that Paul's talking about. And we're going to dive into the intent through the church. But what needs to be repeating, and I really want us to get this synced in into our own theologies, is that there's, and we talked about this last week, there's, when we look at the brokenness and the darkness of the world, there's sin, there's these demonic forces, but then there's also these powers. Jesus calls it the world. I mean, Paul's making it clear that Christ reigns over all and is over all, and and. And that Christ is the most powerful. And at the same time, he's making it clear throughout this book that there are spiritual influences, demonic principalities that both personally tempt individuals, and this is really important, collectively convince cultures. There's these powers at work, cultural powers that drive people, people groups, even nations, which left unchecked become systemic principalities. Cultural prides that become collective influences. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about the ways in the world. And even as I talk, even the words that I brought up, you can start putting on those goggles we talked about last week. You guys remember the goggles? It's our socio-political goggles that we wear. That whenever you mention a term, like that word systemic, or you, you mention something else, you start labeling what you're seeing. Oh, this conversation over here, Oh, last week we talked about sexual freedom and marriage and we mentioned abortion. I got my goggles on, that's a, that's a red conversation. And if you're on the other side, that's therefore an oppressive conversation. Or we're talking about race. Or we're talking about ethnocentrism, that's a blue conversation. Therefore, if that one's erosive, uh, oppressive, this one's erosive. And we have to take these goggles off so we can have kingdom conversations because last week, if you had your goggles on, it probably felt a little right-wingy. I don't, think, I don't think I preached that way, but if you don't take those goggles off, it'll feel that way. Today, we'll feel a little lefty, you know, if you're like, if you just hear words and you just don't listen to anything else and you concentrate on your cable news discipleship, that's what happens. That's what happens, and we've got to have these conversations because the gospel is in the midst of it, and we'll talk about that in a second. So let's go. Racism, ethnocentrism, nationalism, patriotism. We're talking about this in the first century Greco-Roman world. But the way in which these principalities have interacted with class and law enforcement and education have dominated uh, the conversation socially. I wouldn't say lately, but in the last 15 years, you've, you've felt those conversations. And speaking about race or anything feels like you can't do it right. Just like last week when I was speaking about gender and sexuality. It's like it invites scrutiny, which is why it's so fun. It's not. But it's actually really good because it brings clarity as long as you don't own superiority. But history, time and time again, the powers have worked through people and people groups, through pre-Jesus imperialism, uh, post-Jesus, you got the barbarian invasions, the dark times of the Middle Ages, of course, the African slave trade and the establishment of the colonies. You've got the Jewish Holocaust. You've got the Rwanda genocide, which is the most bloody 90 days in history, in our own modern history. you got recent asylum seeker, seekers fleeing Central America. These are all driven by cultural powers that, again, yes, tempt individuals, but collectively convince cultures of what is right and wrong, disguising sin for one's own personal and collective good. N.T. Wright, who is a historical Jesus scholar, he's a renowned New Testament scholar. He's used a lot by like conservative evangelicals and mainline uh, movements as well. He writes this. I say that because this could feel like I just got to get out of this and get into the kingdom conversation. He writes this, both the earthly authorities and their shadow heavenly counterparts always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image. Monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse, they, these powers, tend to marginalize people or groups who don't fit their narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be by the very fact of his existence. This is the manifold wisdom of God. A warning sign to them, these powers that want to separate us, that their time is up. An announcement to the world that there's a different way to be human. I think a lot of times when you dip your toe into these conversations, you can hear a voice say, why don't you just preach the gospel? Just preach the gospel. Okay, let's do that. First, we have to realize it's not just individual sin that drove Jesus to the cross. It was cultural forces. It was this this warring of different tribes and nations that drove Jesus to the cross. It was this ether of like this different classes within this oppressed culture. Some would say this minority culture, which it was, this Jewish culture, Pharisees, this high... Uh, middle class culture, Sadducees, upper classes, you have these escapists, you have these zealots, then you have this Roman imperial influence coming in who's coupling with the Herodians that are from a different nation but trying to participate in this nation, all finding their ways to pin this would-be Messiah to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus absorbed both our personal sin as well as the cultural prides to create a lasting bridge between us and God and us and each other. And one of the greatest critiques, and if you're just like checking out the church, this might seem like heady conversation, but one of the greatest critiques of modern evangelicalism and the Protestant stream by and large is it was too, it's too reductionistic. That in the last 50 years, it's been so focused on personal sin and personal salvation so that you can have a personal relationship that this idea of the kingdom that couples people together, that couples cultures together, different and unique, has been lost. And that's why we've seen somewhat of a renaissance in this idea of living out the kingdom in your day-to-day. I mean, think about it. In the Gospels, Jesus was speaking to his Jewish brethren uh, about their cultural pride how they focus so much on their dietary laws, on the Sabbath, the what they eat and look like, and how much they missed out on their call to live a more justice-oriented life. That God desires mercy, which was justice in that case for those who were oppressed, and not just their sacrifices. The, the king doesn't just speak to individuals, he speaks to cultures by and large. I feel like that's a sermon in and of itself, but the gospel is not just about saving souls, it's about redeeming cultures. How does this conversation relate to kids? Like, "Eh, this is an adulting series. Kids have a wondrous curiosity about different people and people groups. It's a beautiful thing. And there's something about having wonder and, and better yet, curiosity as being childlike. What's it like? What is their experience like? This different people. What's it like being in an interracial marriage? What's it like having two families come together that have two different sociopolitical backgrounds? What's these different ideas of this class and this class? What's that all like? How did you experience God? How did, how did God work in your life? Kids, they do notice differences, but the innocence there is, is wonderful. And I think there's a, there's a holiness and blamelessness that we need to own just to have conversations. It's like, hey, what's, what is this like? I don't know. And a lot of times, it's not just this, but we, we, we inherit social exclusivities as kids that in time make them a little bit more overprotective. When Christianity is and should be the most culturally diverse religious movement in the history of the human race. Okay, that's the first part of it all. The follow-up to that main idea is the question I have today, which we'll exposit from the scripture is, if Christianity is the most culturally diverse religious movement in the history of the human race, how do we celebrate? How does our curiosity breed celebration? Celebrate the diversity of one another while embracing unity together. Easy topic, easy peasy. How do we... This is great. How do we celebrate the diversity of one another while embracing unity together? Uh, and so we have a bit of chat, scripture to go through, and the way that I decided to do it today is we won't stand for today because there'll be a lot of different times. I'm going to read, exposit a point. Read, exposit a point. How's my pace doing? Am I right? Okay. Ephesians 2. Let's stand for this first section, and then I want me to stand for the rest. Verses 11 for this one through 18. Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. I love that phrase. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That's God's word for us. In part, you may have a seat. So Paul mentions this term, The dividing wall of hostility, which occurred between Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles are just non-Jews in this case. Well, that's what they are. He even brings up a term, this idea of the uncircumcised, which for his Jewish brethren would be a very derisive term. Oh, those Gentiles, the uncircumcised, that's that's a derogatory term. And it's simple, but there's something that Paul's acknowledging in this that we too have to acknowledge that when it comes to this idea of celebrating diversity of one another while embracing unity unity together, we need to understand that we have tribal prides, that we have our own tribes, so we have, and and prides there. We understand that we have tribal, whether it's cultural, national, political, ethnic, uh, geographical, generational. If you're a man, there's some male pride we can have. If you're a woman, there can also be female pride there. That we have, we have tribal prides. It's collective bias that, that perpetuates cultural superiority. And it's almost impossible to escape. It is. I mean, if you think locally, you're like, are you part of San Diego? North County. You know what I mean? There's like this bit where you feel like, I'm in North County. And then even in your North County, like, where are you from? Del Mar, Solana Beach, Encinitas, I'm, I'm La Costa, Carlsbad. And even in little towns, you feel like, which part of Encinitas, La Or like, you know, like, a Levenhain? We're, we're like the farm people, you know, like there's the whole thing. <laughs> I don't know. But you feel that. You feel that vibey, finicky ways in which we self-represent with our geographic locations. And we tend to do that. We, we tend to do that, or we, we tend to think that we're, we're above this tribal tribal nature. Like, I grew up in the East Coast. That's another one. Like, I'm East Coast. What you gonna do? How you doing? I'm East Coast. Um, You do that. I grew up in a middle-class family. My mom was a pharmacist. My dad's a teacher. They're both alive. Love them. My dad was also a basketball coach, and we grew up in a rural area, and one of the cultures that I, 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 I was accustomed to growing up was the African, a rural African-American community because the majority of the basketball team was black. And I was uh, the, the sole, no, there's was two of us, two white people on the team. And I grew up with this, uh, this culture around me. And in, there's a way in which I can be like, well, I get African-American culture. You know, I had two guys move in with me when their parents died when I was in high school. You can be like, I get it when they're like living in my culture, you know? much less how could I understand the complexity of the conversations of that people group? Like, we don't, I don't get it. It's just a gift to be able to experience culture. I mean, the last couple years, I've had, like, uh, I would say, encounters with a subset of Asian culture. We would just say in the last 15 years, we met in a Chinese evangelical church, got to serve up there in that church in the morning while we met at night. That was neat. We've had some Filipino gals live with us, uh, Vietnamese coworker, and you're like, you can take that and be like, hey, I've got my Asian badge. You know what I mean? But it's like, no way, and that is really derogatory to how diverse uh, Asian culture is. Uh, it's just amazing to have an opportunity to listen and learn uh, as a child, different people's perspectives. There's no way that I'm above that. I, there's no way to like know all this and do this conversation well, and that's the beauty of it. If curiosity is the goal, if you're free to wonder and know that you don't know everything. And how do I know that I'm not above it? Well, this week, my freezer went down. They said, well, the door wasn't opening; it didn't go down. The door wasn't open, and I called LG. I called LG because it's under a year, and you're like, under a year, they should just come out and like, pick up the refrigerator, walk away with it, and give you a new one, right? So I call the line, and I talk to somebody. This person has an accent. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like just listening, talking. And they give me advice. They tell me to thaw it out. It's like, great. So I did that for 24 hours. And I call back again. They tell me to re-level the refrigerator. and, And that didn't work. So I call again. And I'm like, in the midst, in the background of my mind, I'm picturing this person and picturing what I assume is a room of people behind the phones and a culture who love to just... Make my culture do dumb things to get revenge or something. You just create all these weird narratives. You do. Rather than think through, like, I wonder what's going on in this person's story. And even as I think about that culture, I'm if that is true, which I don't know is true, what is that cultural story? What are you doing there, God? What opportunities they have or do not have? But you do it. It's like I created this left to myself. You create this dark narrative based on your own assumptions. I have not arrived. There's tribal prides that we have that are undergirded by dark spiritual forces. And that's not some huge illustration, but we need to understand. It's, it's convicting that we have tribal prides. You and I do. And, begin, and when we understand that we have tribal prides, then we can begin to understand what they are. You won't get it all at once, but how they, how they arise. and It requires a lot of exploration. You have to explore your own heart but also having open and honest conversations. Are there people, groups, or minorities uh, that you tend to view negatively, derisively? Do you believe that systemic racism is a thing? Are you willing to read other authors with differing perspectives about that? Paul's, Paul's not just noticing the separation, but he's noticing the opportunity loss from this separation. And that leads us to reading more of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, I'm gonna go for a while. Paul writes this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Like, we're all part of this building. It's pretty cool. And in you, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, he's almost getting ready to pray at this moment, and then he gets caught up, and he's like, whoa, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by Spirit to God's holy people and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in and the promise in Christ Jesus. It's a lot. It's a lot there. I think what's helpful is that word mystery. What does mystery mean? Something that hasn't been known, which has been made known. This is huge because what Paul is pointing to is essentially the question that sometimes we ask why the Old Testament? Why the people of Israel? What's up with that story? Why those 39 books? Why do we need to understand this Abrahamic promise and this people who were caught in slavery and then this rise of this kingdom and then this fall of this kingdom and then this return after exile? What, what is the importance of all that? There are a lot of answers to that one. There's a lot of answers. Here's one. There is so much to be learned, understood, appreciated, and taken hold of by the story of Israel and our Jewish spiritual heritage. There just is. There's so much that we can be curious about the way in which God interacted with that culture at that time to help us understand the ways in which God interacts not only with my culture, but also other cultures. And this leads us um, to our second point. How do we celebrate diversity of one another while embracing Uni together. We, one, we trade in our tribal pride, and then we be wondrously curious about the multicultural backgrounds of each other. That it's, it's, it's awesome the way in which God has moved in, in Greg's life. I, w- I want to hear more about that so that I can encounter a God who, who lived in his story and the story. We want to be curious. Yeah, we are one body we are fellow citizens, members of his household, built together. But each of us are different pieces of block. We have our own unique backstories. And our fellowship is enlivened we, when we hear each other's stories and the way God moved in our lives, but not only in our lives, our culture. Curious. Our fellowship becomes richer when we know our stories. And that includes our cultural backstory. I'm Irish Catholic, it's like kind of neat. I have a real heart for um, reaching people who are de-churched both in Protestant stream because I have a Protestant background and Catholic background, I love them. Um, But think about it, what was it like for Lita to to move from Mexico to the States only to be deported? What's it like to have an interracial marriage? What's that like? How does that work? What's it like for two communities to come together and have different socio-political backgrounds? How's God moving in that? I think I want to pause for a question. I, I got struck by this morning. What this conversation means is that you would know your own background. That you would you would come to understand your geographical identity, your ethnic identity. Uh, Your national identity, both where you grew up as well as like who you are now. So, here's something I want you guys to process. I'm going to do one introvert process and then we're going to go back to another question, which I think is helpful. And I think it's the next question, Lair Bear. How has your cultural history, your upbringing, wondrously informed your own faith? Take a moment just to process that. Wondrously, like, how's it like wonder? I just like that word wondrously, like it's like wonder, it's not a great adverb, but I I dug it. Like how can you wonder in the way in which God moved through your family's story? And maybe you were adopted and you don't know your backstory. That's its own story. That is key to the heart of the gospel. Or like maybe you were adopted, but you don't know your culture. It's like, well, what did you grow up, what was it like to be adopted or brought in or grew up in a home? I know this can be painful, but God works in the pain. And then there is a question, like kind of higher up that I kind of missed, but it's like perfect timing for it. Oh, that one. And then how have you experienced a church in another culture? How have you experienced the movement of God when you've gone to another culture, whether it's a different type of church or a different country altogether? what was that like for you and how did you experience the great expanse that is God? This is one that we can share together. Or maybe you're like here and I don't even know church. How are you experiencing goodness in and through this place? All right. Let's take time and have some time to share and then we'll come up and wrap up this message. Cool? If I haven't made this clear, curiosity is your best friend in this asking helpful questions. I was part of a church about six years ago, and we did a series on race, and it was kingdom culture, I think it was called, and it was not well received. Um, Because, in part, there was this idea that we from the leadership spoke from this idea of understanding how complex the conversation was. I think that was part of the feedback. It's like, how would you understand the complexity of this conversation? I don't. We don't. I don't. Uh, and at the same time, it, it got really bad in our groups. Uh, there would be this young gal, uh, front, a person of color, was sharing about some of her struggles. And then a minute later, somebody else would share, like, why are we talking about this? Racism doesn't exist. And totally dismiss everything this person was sharing with. And there was no reconciliation there. there was, she left... Yeah, it was just like a really ugly. It's really ugly. So curiosity breeds safety. So may we be curious. That's what it's like to be a kid. That's the whole adulting tie-in. Let's read a little bit more. We talked about understanding our own tribal prides, being curious about every conversation we have. And almost every conversation is in some way cross-cultural. Um, and then the last section is this, Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. Paul writes this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. And although I am less and the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. These are all the principalities, those powers we talked about. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are actually for your glory. This is Paul talking, and this is a a bit of his autobiography that he's giving us. He was a terrorist to the early Christians. He's talking about being the worst, the least of these. He's now a servant of the gospel. He's apostle to the Gentiles, who are these outsiders, and now is suffering in a Roman cell. It's like this concoction of all this spiritual, cultural forces going on. And yet, he doesn't call himself a prisoner of anyone but Jesus, He's not mad at Rome. 3 verse 1 he says, for this reason I, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's literally writing from a Roman jail cell or a Roman house prison. For the sake of you Gentiles. He's not mad at other people or other people groups. He sees this as every opportunity to suffer for the sake of others. So that those who don't have an opportunity to know God. Those who don't have representation by God. Who don't have access by God would have it. God is where we want everybody to have equity, for sure. It's about kinship, family, unity among diversity, and Paul's getting coughing up, caught up in it. And this, this idea of him caught up in his own persecution for the sake of others leads us to our third and final point. How do we celebrate diversity of one another while embracing unity together? We we traded in our tribal pride, we become wondrously curious about our multicultural backgrounds, and we become persecuted for the sake of kingdom kinship. That you and I become persecuted for the sake of kingdom kinship. For the for cause so that people would have access to God and God's love. We would lay down our lives for the sake of others, cultivating relationships with different people with different backgrounds. This has many manifestations. This means when, as, as ambassadors of reconciliations compelled by God's love, it means that when somebody says something rooted in hate, we call it out. Say, I'm, I'm not into that. I don't think that's healthy for anybody. Racist remarks, classist remarks, gender remarks, that's not our thing. That's not what I say. We don't, we don't I don't have a space for that. They, they say, if you say, you see or hear something, you say something. I'm not into that, Uncle John. Uh, this also means that we lay down our sociopolitical views in order to hear other people. Like uh, uh, they're saying something that's contrary to what my my ideology is. This okay, I'm going to give this to you, God, and hear them to see how you are working and in their lives. If we think that whatever that person's saying is all wrong, then our God is like way too small, way too small. We have to listen to a multitude of voices. Not just that one friend who's af- too afraid to tell you how hard it really is. And here's another one I had this. It's like, become an auntie or an uncle. Sometimes you're like, hey, how do I even put myself around people who are different from me? There are at-risk kids who need a home, and you'll get to encounter them. different parents, mostly moms, and different kids of different backgrounds uh, who enter your home and you get to serve them and love them and lay down your life, literally, even if it's only a week or two or longer, for the sake of kingdom kinship. Become an auntie and uncle. That's something that was in my notes. There it is. And I get how these conversations can bring anxiety for some. That you can feel nervous. Just, just own that you don't know it all. I don't know it all. I'm just trying my best up here right now. But what we're doing is we're taking hold of this confident expression that Paul's only pointing to, is that God has brought all people together so that we can learn from one another. We're, we're simply celebrating, because that's what curiosity leads to, is you celebrate. You're like, I'm curious. Oh, that's awesome. We're celebrating this established unity we have and the beauty of our differences. It's an amazing thing. So may our curiosity turn to celebrating as we seek to be a safe place to hear our stories. Amen. Okay, here's some next steps as I invite the band up. This one's fun for me. Maybe this is just me. You could totally tell it's all me. Go out to a restaurant that seems foreign to you. Do that. That's a great one. Enjoy the beauties of that culture. Allow, you, allow God to show you how big God really is. Uh, what else do we have here? Get to know someone who's different from you. Foster a friendship. Don't make that person your teacher, but foster a friendship that allows for honest conversations. Um, and then I, this is two. I'm going to say th- three. Volunteer in a kids ministry. We need help there. We always do. And then four. Become an auntie or an uncle. Amen? Amen. So let me pray for us today. Lord, we thank you that you see us. That you celebrate just the goodness of our own upbringings, while at the same time you want to you want to help us be an inclusive. People who don't have it all together, but with you, we got it. Help us to be humble, and more importantly, curious. I think that's such a fun word. Even as we see our kids serve us ice cream, can we take hold of just their beauty and their curiosity? What do you want to show us, God? That may be more important than anything I've said. And thank you, Son of God, that you went to the cross for us. You went to the cross for my own, Iniquities, my own sins, the ways I fail to love you and others, but also you want to redeem my culture and, and all cultures by and large, so that we could be a new humanity together, beautifully different, all of us broken, so that we can serve and find life, so that we can humble ourselves as you humbled yourself, God. We follow your way. We know the way of weakness is the way, Lord. So teach us that today, in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Pastor Andy. Can I invite you guys to stand with us? I think this next song is kind of pertinent to today's message, and I hope that you can kind of catch the spirit of it as we sing it together. I lose this fight Try my best but just don't get it right Well I talk the talk that I don't walk I miss the moments right before my eyes
0: Somebody with a hurt that I could have held
1: Somebody with a hand that I could have held But I just can't see past myself Lord help me be A little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love and faith. A little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. don't yeah, no deny, denying I have changed I've been saved from who I used to be Even at my best, I must confess I still need help to see the way you see Somebody with a hurt that I could have held Somebody with a hand that I could have held But I just can't see past myself Lord, help me be A little more like mercy A little more like grace A little more like kindness Goodness, love and faith A little more like patience A little more like peace A little more like like Jesus A little less like me I want to be the beggar on the street Love to be your hands and feet Freely give what I receive, but help me be I want to friendship first above all else Love my neighbor as myself In the moments no one sees, Lord, help me be A little more like mercy A little more like grace A little more like kindness, goodness Love and faith A little more like patience A little more like peace A little more like like Jesus, a little less like me. More of living, everything I preach. A little more like Jesus, a little less like me, a little less like me. More like Jesus, a little less like me.
0: seat. Um, we're leaving soon. I'm taking this off. Ice cream's outside.